Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds on this wintry day. So we're delighted to have Gabe Brooks with us today, who's going to talk to us. And to introduce him will be Brad Arick. Brad is an assistant associate professor of medicine in our department and the section chief of hematology, oncology, and director of the familial cancer program at Norscott Cancer Center. Brad, tell us about Gabe. Pleasure. So thanks, thanks for all coming. Thanks all for coming. Um, and so Gabe is one of our, is our newest uh, faculty member in section Hemonc. He just arrived here last August, uh, but he's not new to Hanover. Uh, in fact, he was born in Hanover. I assume at Mary Hitchcock. Yeah, sure. Um, right uh, at the old Mary Hitchcock um, in Hanover, uh, and. Uh, didn't go to school here initially, but then came back and was a, as a graduate of Dartmouth College, um, and then went to University of Pennsylvania for you know, jump in University of Pennsylvania for medical school, uh, followed by uh, internship residency at, at Penn, uh, University of Colorado, yeah, yeah, University of Colorado, <laughs> then fellowship at Dana Farber, and then following that for the past three years before coming here, he's on the faculty at Harvard. And uh, Gabe is an oncologist with a specialty interest in GI oncology and also uh, uh, one of these outcomes kind of guys uh, and is here doing sort of 50-50 that with uh, TDI and us and, and uh, oncology. And so I'm quite pleased to, oh, and I should also say uh, that uh, it, was, uh, it was such, there was even icing on top of the cake uh, because Gabe brought with him his wife, um, or they came together uh, in, in a truly collaborative manner, uh, who is on the faculty now in the department of, in the ED, uh, and started her very first shift yesterday. So we have two new faculty members, but we'll hear from one today. Gabe, thanks. Thank you very much for the introductions. and. Um, both me and my wife are, are glad to be here. I don't presume to speak for her, but I think she would let me say that. Um, and uh, people do usually um, usually enjoy working with her even more than with me, probably. So, um, so I'm glad to be here, and I'm glad to have a chance to talk about uh, this topic, which is um, which is important uh, important to me. Um, I consider myself a health services researcher. I spent um, while I was at Dana Farber, I did my training. Um, I did uh, research training with uh, Deb Schrag, who is my research mentor there, who is a, a tremendous mentor in uh, health services and outcomes research. Um, and so, what that means to me is it means I'm interested in the way that we deliver health care um, in the in the real world at the intersection of policy and clinical practice, um, and, and how do we how do we um, move forward to deliver better care to our patients? How do we translate evidence um, from, from uh, clinical trials and, and from um, better, increasing better understandings of how to deliver care and how do we actually turn that into clinical practice? Um, so I hope that this is what my topic is about, avoidable hospitalizations in cancer care and systems-based approaches for preventing uh, those. I have no uh, potential conflicts of interest to report. Um, the objectives of this talk um, are to evaluate and discuss the concept of potentially avoidable hospitalization, um, specifically as applied to cancer care, but I hope that it's generalizable to medicine um, in, in a, 
general medicine or, or specialty medicine um, in a number of ways. Um, I want to spend some time talking about um, uh, metrics and measures of hospital utilization, um, which have, uh, I think, have been not used as well as they could be um, to date, um, in my view. Um, I'm going to talk about readmission rates and then contrast that with trying to measure actual hospital admission rates among clinically defined populations, which I think is really the way that we ought to go. Um, and lastly, I'm going to start talking about systems-based approaches for preventing avoidable hospitalization. So what kinds of interventions do we bring to the clinic at the systems level to change the way we deliver care and to give better care to patients and reduce, the, reduce hospitalizations? Um, so, the, so these are the themes that I hope, are, um, even if you're not an oncologist, that this talk um, resonates with you to some extent. Um, so I want to talk about reexamining the role of, uh, of inpatient hospital care in patients with chronic disease, because I think that's, um, that's what I'm talking about with cancer care. Um, measuring the, inpatient, the intensity of inpatient care, this applies whether we're talking about uh, oncology or cardiology or nephrology or, or general medicine. Um, and I want to talk about population health, which is this term that gets, that's, gets bandied about, but uh, I'm not sure it's always very well defined. Um, and I want to talk about how do we study, uh, what are the interventions, uh, what are systems level interventions for health, in healthcare delivery and how should we be studying them? Um, so I'll return to this outline through the, throughout the talk um, to kind of uh, guide, guide myself through the talk and, and let you know how, how much progress we're making. So if you, if you, get, if you feel like it's going very slowly, um, you'll, you'll know, at least know, you'll know where we are by the, by the outline. Um, so first I want to talk about why to study hospitalization in cancer care. I want to talk about what is a potentially avoidable hospitalization. Um, what are the metrics? How should we be measuring the intensity of inpatient hospital care? And then um, I, I, when I made the outline, I said designing interventions to reduce avoidable hospitalizations. I'm not sure I actually get that far, but I'll describe some interventions that have been, that have been studied and talk about um, uh, one intervention that I, um, one uh, tool that I'm hoping can be part of an intervention someday. Um, so I'll start in with this motivation, why study hospitalizations in cancer care? Um, I think um, there's, from the patient perspective, hospitalizations are distressing. Patients don't like to be in the hospital. Um, they're often glad to have the, our care and our help, um, but, um, but they're, they're only there because things have, gone, things have gotten to the point where they needed our help and, and they don't want to be in that position. Um, and hospitalizations indicate that things have gone bad. Um, they, don't, they don't generally come unless, unless um, something's not going well. Um, from a societal perspective, we know these hospitalizations are expensive, and we know that they're variable. So the, um, what TDI has taught us and has taught the world is that uh, unwarranted variation is, is, variation is often unwarranted, and, and finding unwarranted variation is one way to understand where um, there is our potential for improvements. So um, when I was uh, doing my research training um, at Dana-Farber, um, one of my first projects was to look at, um, look at spending for patients with cancer um, in either in the six, first six months after diagnosis of an advanced stage cancer. Um, so I was looking at lung, breast, colon, um, and pancreas cancer, um, or the spending within the last six months of life. Um, and this um, slide comes from looking at spending in the first six months after a diagnosis of stage four cancer. So among patients, Medicare patients who are diagnosed with stage four cancer, um, we, we split their costs up into these different buckets of cost. 
Um, and so this, and this is all comers. This is, this is from using um, the SEER registry linked to Medicare claims. So this is all pa patients diagnosed with cancer in those SEER areas in the United States. Um, it's a population-based uh, cancer registry system. Um, and what we found was that the largest single bucket of cost is acute hospital care. This was a little surprising to me, and we, we talk a lot about chemotherapy. And part of that is because not all these patients necessarily even receive chemotherapy. Many older Americans who are diagnosed with cancer, um, even with advanced cancer, do not choose to, to receive chemotherapy treatment. But most of them end up in the hospital at some point um, during, after their diagnosis. And that's why 48% of total spending was for hospital care, and much smaller proportion was for chemotherapy, outpatient procedures, imaging, other things. So we talk a lot about the cost of chemotherapy. We talk a lot about the cost of imaging. Um, but the elephant, in my view, in the room is, is this acute hospital care, which we sort of regard as accidental. It happens, and there's not much we can do about it. And um, I, I wanted to think more about that and think, well, maybe there are things that we can do to, to be more intentional about hospital care, which you know, recognizing that it's a, it's a very expensive um, resource that we use. So it's, that last slide was the expense to society. This is um, a recently published paper um, about the expense to the individual. <clears throat> so um, this, this study looked at out-of-pocket costs for patients with newly diagnosed cancer of any stage. Um, and uh, as, you, as you may know, out-of-pocket costs are influenced by what kind of supplementary, what kind of secondary insurance patients have. So they stratified this by different kinds of uh, secondary insurance. Um, and there are about 15% of patients who don't carry supplemental insurance with their Medicare coverage. Um, now you see, for regardless of which type of uh, supplemental insurance patients had, um, the inpatient hospitalizations, which is this first blue bar in each of the series, um, was usually the highest, except for in the public supplemental insurance, where they, they don't have much inpatient copay. But among the other patient populations, the largest contributor to their out-of-pocket costs after cancer diagnosis was inpatient hospitalizations or dental care. But um, inpatient hospitalizations was a driver. And in patients who have no su uh, supplemental insurance, um, these costs are averaging $3,000 per patient of hospital cost. That's, that's not a small amount of money. And uh, the patients in the top decile of out-of-pocket costs spent 26% of household income on inpatient hospital copays. So this is not a trivial issue. And we heard um, at the Cancer Center retreat a couple weeks ago from Yusuf Safar, who studies out-of-pocket costs in cancer patients. And this is another illustration of why out-of-pocket costs are really relevant to our patients, including the hospital costs. Um, so this was part of the same project that I showed in the prior slide, um, looking at the, these different buckets of cost um, for Medicare patients with advanced cancer. So I then sought to look for um, variation um, in, in uh, spending um, by regions, as, as has been pioneered by, by TDI. Um, so this, um, the, the, each series of bars, Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4, those are the, the quintiles of spending. So this is overall spending. So if you um, if you then look at uh, hospital days by spending quintile, um, so and spent, again, this is by region, the regions that had the lowest overall spending for cancer care also had the fewest hospital days, either in the six months after cancer diagnosis or in the six months preceding death. And, the and, and it's, a, it's a continuous function. The more you spend at the regional level on total cost of care, 
the more hospital days you use over that time, such that there's a 60%, 60 to 70% variation from the low spending regions to the high spending regions in uh, hospital costs. So this degree of variation strongly suggests that, there, that it shouldn't be warranted. There shouldn't be 60 to 70% variation across regions. Um, that, you know, that's not due to differences in disease burden. That's due to differences in the way we practice medicine. I mean, maybe it's too low in the low spending regions, um, maybe, but pr most probably it's too high in the high spending regions, I, I would argue. Although this, these data don't give us that inference, it, it comes from other sources, I think. Um, but as has been pointed out to me, um, uh, regions don't practice healthcare. Um, and I know that's a criticism probably that, some, that TDI gets sometimes, is that healthcare isn't organized by regions, it's organized by practices. Um, and so, um, Medicare um, and the Centers for Medicare Services, when they were setting up uh, some of their alternative payment pr uh, models, um, looked at um, variation among oncology practices in costs, costs of care for various services and in use of various services. Um, and what they found in, that, in the, these analyses was that um, Medicare inpatient spending was 70% greater in the high spending versus low spending <coughs> practices. Um, this, was when you, this is not total spending, but spending for hospital use. So if you just look at variation in inpatient hospital use across, uh, across oncology practices, you do see 70% interquartile variation from low, to, low spending to high spending practices. Again, similar degree of variation to what we saw just across regions, but this is across practices, um, indicating that um, there are practices that have intense utilization of hospitals and practices that seem to have found a better way or, or at least have found a a less intense way to utilize the hospital. Whether it's better, I guess, is, is, uh, needs to be examined, but, um, but there's, this variation persists at the, at the practice level. Um, practices that had higher inpatient intensity had more unplanned readmissions, greater ICU use in the last 30 days of life, and fewer patients receiving hospice for at least seven days before death. Those last two are considered quality measures of end-of-life care. Um, we believe that Lots of in intensive care unit use in the last day days of life is, is probably not of benefit to patients. Um, in fact, there are data that show that, that it, it may harm some, some patients and it may harm the grieving process for families that, that lose loved ones. Um, so these findings of variation across regions and across practices have important implications for healthcare reform. Um, and then healthcare reform has important implications for the way that we practice medicine. Um, so, ACO, the ACO programs already incentivize um, us and, and healthcare in general to try to reduce avoidable utilization of anything, whether it's hospitalization or, or uh, discretionary tests. Um, so there are already incentives baked into the system in small but increasing amounts to reduce avoidable hospitalizations or other avoidable utilization. But those incentives are countered by our fee for, prevailing fee-for-service system so that on the one hand we have ACOs, on the other hand we have fee-for-service, and um, which incentive is stronger. Um, so the, these incentives are weak, but um, Kerry Kala um, and others at the TDI have done some research that has showed that um, where ACOs save money on cancer patients is by reduced, by reduced hospitalizations. Um, it wasn't a large effect, but it was the one area where there did seem to be some measurable impact of ACO care. Carrie, I hope I'm getting this right. Okay, very good. I got the thumbs up. Um, so, um, will stronger or more? So, if ACOs can have some weak impact on hospital utilization for cancer patients, recognizing that I don't think that um, AC, the people who are organizing our ACOs uh, across the country are 
are embedding themselves in oncology clinic or, or doing much to reform the way that we practice cancer care, but they're doing enough to reduce hospitalizations at the margin. Well, what if we have stronger incentives? What if we have uh, um, incentives that are targeted specifically at the oncology practice so that the oncologists feel they have a stake um, in, reforming the, in reforming the delivery system? Um, and that's what is going to come with us, to us with the oncology care model, which is um, of relevance to us in cancer care because it, it, um, sort, it sort of spells out the direction that Medicare wants to go with paying for cancer care. And it's probably of relevance to many of you in other specialties because uh, um, the sentence for Medi that Medicare wants to put increasing numbers of patients into alternative payment models, um, and that means that they want to have an increasing footprint in, in, in uh, creating incentives to increase the value of care and reduce utilization. So the way that the oncology care model is organized, I think, is probably of relevance to many of you, even if you're not in cancer care. So I'll tell you a little bit about the oncology care model, which started this summer um, and ha has just gotten up and running. Uh, it is an episode-based alternative payment model. There are 196 oncology practices throughout the United States participating. I think it's going to touch something like 20 to 25 percent of cancer care in the United States. Uh, that's a rough estimate. We're not participating. We're not, we're not eligible to participate um, because of, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of rules about who can participate. Um, but a number of, and most academic centers are not, but there are some academic centers that are participating and many community oncology practices who are participating in the model. It's based on a six-month episode of care. The episode is triggered the first time a patient receives a qual these are Medicare patients, the first time a patient receives a qualifying um, chemotherapy treatment. Um, and then once that episode is triggered, um, practices can bill um, a care coordination fee, whether or not the patient actually presents in the office in a given month for the next six months, they can bill that care coordination fee, they can use that care coordination fee to do telephonic care, to do whatever they want. Um, and then they have an incentive tied to uh, the um, performance-based payments that are tied to their total spending. So for each patient, depending on the diagnosis, there is an episode target cost. If the practice is able to deliver care um, less than the episode target cost um, and, uh, and they're able to meet quality benchmarks, then the practice will qualify for an incentive payment. Um, and after the oncology care model was planned out, MACRA was passed. Um, MACRA may, may not be familiar to people, um, but it's a, it was an important piece of legislation um, that uh, removed the sustainable growth rate formula, which was a, a, a big problem for, for um, Medicare funding, but it also put in place um, new, new incentives for alternative payment measures. And so um, oncology practices that participate in this um, have some reduced regulatory burden because they're, they're going to already qualify, um, they have a MAC, they have a APM that's macro eligible. So um, I don't want to go too much into the, the legislative weeds, but um, that, that's a big deal for, for this payment model, and it, it further incentivizes participation. So um, I've gotten through the motivation. Now I want to talk about what is a potentially avoidable hosp oncology hospitalization um, and the framework that we use for thinking about this. Um, avoidability is really hard to, um, to define when you're looking at a specific episode or specific incident. Um, it's not observable. Um, we don't have a lot of randomized controlled trials where a specific intervention is studied and then we find out, well, was, did, did this intervention have, was it associated with a reduction in hospitalizations? That'd be the ideal way to identify an avoidable hospitalization. We just have, don't have those kinds of studies. Um, 
In medicine, we've used this definition of ambulatory care-sensitive conditions. So if you have a complication, hospitalization-related complications of diabetes, that's an ambulatory care-sensitive condition, and those are considered avoidable hospitalizations. Um, that's just an administrative definition, but it's accepted. Um, there's, there's some evidence to support that definition. But those definitions specifically do not apply to cancer care. Cancer patients are removed from the denominator of those sorts of measures because they're not felt to be good measures for cancer care. Readmissions, we're all familiar with readmission measures, which are commonly used and common, readmissions are commonly um, evaluated at the hospital administrative level, is my understanding. Um, and we, have, we already have incentives from Medicare and other payers um, around readmission rates. Um, but uh, that's a, only a small proportion of hospitalizations are actually readmissions. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, it's a limited, and it's also not clear how many of those are actually avoidable. And there's, there's debate about whether admissions, uh, readmissions are avoidable hospitalizations or the fact that, um, that we should expect readmissions to happen because these are sick patients. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in the hospital in the first place. Um, so there's no accepted definition of an avoidable hospitalization in cancer care, I would argue, uh, uh, to date. So um, we sought, we um, put together a couple of case series, which I'm going to show you now, to try to um, evaluate, do these, are there avoidable hospitalization in cancer care, and what do they look like? Um, and our definition of an avoidable hospitalization um, was that if the hospital admission happens here at this star, um, either on the day of admission, the patient could have been managed without being admitted to the hospital. So that's kind of an elective admission. If the patient shows up and you could either manage them in the clinic or admit them to the hospital. Well, if you choose to admit them to the hospital, it's avoidable because you made a, kind of made an elective decision to, to bring them in. Alternatively, if something could have been done different in the 30 days before the hospitalization, cancer patients are followed closely. Um, particularly when they're under treatment, we often have opportunities to change their care and, and to reduce their risk of, of some kind of complication. So if either of these conditions were met, um, we consider a hospitalization to have been avoidable. So I'm going to show you two studies, both of which involve Dana-Farber patients hospitalized at Brigham and Women's. You may know that that's our, Dana-Farber is, is an outpatient cancer hospital joined at the hip, um, even uh, to, um, to Brigham and Women's inpatient hospital. Um, and I'll show you those two um, studies. Uh, and the objectives of doing these studies was to describe the reasons for hospitalization, to estimate the incidence of avoidable hospitalizations, and to put together some pilot data so I, to help me to start thinking about what kinds of interventions um, uh, might work to reduce avoidable hospitalizations if, if we identify that. Um, so the first study here was a, stu a retrospective study of um, patients with GI cancer. Uh, that's that's my, my, my clinical area um, who were hospitalized at Brigham and Women's. Um, and all, all of them were receiving their outpatient cancer care at Dana-Farber. So we said, if a hospitalization is going to be considered avoidable, we want it to be among pa our population. This is the population health. How do you define your population? Well, for us, it was patients who received care in our clinic um, and, uh, and then were subsequently admitted to the hospital. So we then reviewed the medical record for the hospitalization up to and including the hospital admission note. We didn't review the what happened during the hospitalization because we, we wanted to only use the information available at the time of hospitalization. Um, and we made a, a, a group review, um, a consensus determination about whether the hospitalization met those criteria for avoidability that I showed you before. Um, we looked at 201 hospitalizations. This, is, this is our was our population at Dana-Farber, um, median age of 62. 80% um, of the patient, hospitalized patients had metastatic disease, and this is um, this is going to be a recurrent issue is that 
Um, the hospital is, is primarily a place where patients, um, most of the patients in the hospital have metastatic disease. Our patients who are getting adjuvant therapies, we're generally pretty good at keeping them out of the hospital. Um, and 70% of the patients who are hospitalized had been hospitalized before in the last 12 months. And the median time since the last clinic visit was eight days. So again, highlighting that we see these patients quite frequently. So the last time before they were admitted, we had seen them within eight days, 50% of the time. Um, and they had colorectal, pancreas, esophagogastric, and cancer. Um, I, I was interested in this, just categorizing the primary reason for each hospitalization, saying to the best, you know, after chart review, what do we think was the, the primary reason um, for each hospital admission? And um, cancer-related symptoms predominated, and that's not surprising. Cancer is a bad disease, and, and it causes a lot of problems. So at least 50% of the hospitalizations were related to cancer-related symptoms. Um, but treatment-related complications were also prominent. And I would say that many of the cancer-related symptoms, it's hard to distinguish from treatment complications. Um, sometimes it's a, they, they interact with each other. Um, but treatment-related complications predominated in almost 30%. Um, and then non-cancer medical conditions and planned hospitalizations were smaller parts of the picture. So in that consensus review process, we determined that 19% um, or 39 of 201 hospitalizations were avoidable. And I'll say that this was a group of, clin of clinicians. I was one of the most, I was the most junior person in this group, and I was also the one who, I was interested in this topic. I tended to think that things were more avoidable than my colleagues, I'll admit that. But it was a consensus process, so my number was higher than 19%. Um, but 19% was sort of the, the, the consensus number that we, that we could arrive at. I mean, I think a lot, of the, a lot of the more senior people were surprised, frankly, um, after we sat down and did this sort of a quality improvement project in some ways and looked at, at what, were, what were the outcomes of our care, we found that a lot of the hospitalizations were, seemed to us like they were avoidable. But we know that um, this was a chart review project, um, and we know that when you participate in care, it's different. Um, when you're there on the front lines taking care of a patient, you can review a chart and say this is avoidable care, just the same way a, an insurance administrator can deny a, a treatment, um, but they're not there in the room with the patient. So that does change things. So we wanted to, we wanted to ask um, clinicians who are actually involved in the care of these patients, going to look at this question a separate way. So we, um, we did an interview study where we, um, we looked for patients who were hospitalized, and then within, within a week we went and interviewed the team members who took care of them in the outpatient setting, in, and in the hospital, and we, and we interviewed three um, respondents for each patient, the outpatient oncologist, the inpatient attending physician, and the inpatient resident or PA. Now, Dana-Farber, the inpatient attending, was also an, a medical oncologist, um, but was not, was, not necessary, was not the same oncologist who took care of them in the outpatient setting. It was a service oncologist. Um, my wife has arrived. After, <laughs> after taking care of our children this morning. <laughs> Uh, thank you for coming. <laughs> um, so the primary outcome of this study was the proportion of hospitalizations where at least two of these three respondents thought that the hospitalization was potentially avoidable. So for this study, we screened 188 admissions. Um, 132 patients were eligible, meaning that they had received care in the, in the outpatient clinic before the admission. Um, and 103 had complete data for the three, because it, it, was, it was a challenge catching up with these three respondents in a timely fashion. Um, this um, table looks pretty similar to the table that I showed you before. Again, 80%, even though the population is expanded to all patients with solid tumors, 80% uh, of the patients with metastatic disease, um, and the median time since the last clinic visit, again, is, is about a week. 
Um, and what we found was that uh, the inpatient attending and the inpatient PA or resident um, thought that 30% of hospital admissions was av were avoidable. The uh, outpatient oncologist, the one who presumably sent the, in many cases, sent the patient to the ED, had a lower likelihood of, of considering the hospitalization avoidable, but still 18% of the time that outpatient clinician said, yeah, this was probably avoidable. Um, they often thought it was not avoidable through their own action. I mean, and I'm, I'm not blaming them because I think this is the way, this is the, this is the way we rationalize the things that we do, uh, um, and, and it often makes sense, but they often had reasons of why they thought that somebody else had made a decision that didn't make sense to them. Um, so then when we looked at how often, so I'll say that these didn't always match up. So sometimes the outpatient oncologist said it was avoidable, and then the inpatient people said definitely not, and sometimes vice versa. But when we looked at, um, what proportion of these hospitalizations were considered avoidable by two or three of those three reviewers, it was 23% um, were considered avoidable by at least two of the three reviewers. Um, it was also interesting that 49%, you know, the, where there was, were many hospitalizations where there was agreement, no, this was not avoidable. And those, um, there was consensus on 49%. Um, it was hard to get consensus that a hospitalization was avoidable, but much easier to get consensus that it was not avoidable among these three reviewers. So looking at, um, at pooling, the, pooling the information across these two studies, we found that um, cancer-related symptoms um, are the predominant driver of admissions in oncology patients, um, but treatment-related complications also drive a significant proportion of these admissions. Um, we found that 19% using one methodology were considered avoidable, and using a different methodology, um, it was 23% um, that, were, that were met our avoidable threshold. Um, and then in both studies, there were many end-of-life hospitalizations where um, the reason for, for finding a hospitalization to be avoidable was that um, end-of-life care issues did, just had not been addressed um, adequately prior to, prior to the hospitalization. And I see my palliative care colleagues nodding their heads a little bit here um, appropriately. But one of my favorite interviewee comments was, um, yeah, it was avoidable, but it wasn't the wrong thing to do. And I think that was an important comment for me to hear as well because um, you know, uh, our priority in medicine is to take care of patients, and sometimes, um, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's messy. Uh, sometimes, uh, but but at, at the bottom, we shouldn't be worrying about. Well, geez, did I prevent an avoidable hospitalization? We should be primarily focusing on, do we do the right thing for our patients? And so I think that was to me that's what this comment meant was. Um, I'm not worried first about whether or not this hospitalization is avoidable. I'm worried first about, am I confident this patient is getting the care they need? And that needs to be the that needs to be the primary motivator, but we need to create systems that help, help docs um, keep patients out of the hospital, and that help them do the right thing, and, um, and um, keep patients at home where I think they want to be. So um, for the oncologists, these examples will look familiar, and, and I think they'll look familiar for the, for the non-oncologists as well. Um, the first example of an avoidable hospitalization was a 50-year-old with a metastatic small bowel cancer. So a young man, um, but he was um, febrile, jaundiced, had biliary obstruction, and he was receiving fourth-line chemotherapy. Well, there is no fourth-line chemotherapy for small bowel cancer, um, even though we're tempted to, to pull something out of the hat for a 50-year-old man who may have family living with him at home or, or whatnot. Um, but um, we felt, the reviewers in this case felt that this one was potentially avoidable through earlier discussion of hospice. There was no, we looked throughout the chart to find some, some mention of hospice or some referral to palliative care. It wasn't there. Um, and so 
Um, there, there was no mention that the patient preferred aggressive care. Um, there was just no mention of this. I and mean, we felt that, that this patient just didn't, didn't receive the end-of-life planning that he needed. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, this is a 47-year-old woman who was getting adjuvant chemotherapy for breast cancer, came into the ED febrile to 100.6, but non-neutropenic. Um, so she's non-focal, non-neutropenic, um, but was admitted to the hospital for management of fever. Um, it was, you know, nobody, nobody could explain this after it happened, um, but, these ha but these admissions happen. Um, so um, th those, are, those are sort of, for me, helped me understand what does an avoidable hospitalization look like in cancer care. Obviously, um, studying, studying, trying to make generalizations from um, Dana-Farber patients hospitalized at Brigham Women's Hospital may not be the best practice because that is a unique setting. But I think that I think that some of the I hope that some of the principles that we were able to extract from that were were applicable, and I think I think they are. I think they I think these issues um, do repeat themselves um, across the world of oncology and, and across the world of medicine. Um, so now I want to spend a little time talking about what metrics um, we should be using for thinking about inpatient intensity of inpatient hospitalization. Um, so I've sort of referred to this already. Um, we could use some administrative measure of avoidable hospitalizations if we want to track progress towards reducing hospitalizations in cancer patients, but um, we don't really have that definition. We could use readmission rates, but I'm going to explain why I think that's a bad idea, even though that's sort of the, the tool that we have most readily available right now. Or we could use admission rates, hospitalization rates, um, population-level hospitalization rates. But that requires defining the population, which, um, which is a wrinkle that um, I don't think we've, we've, been, we've achieved a, a very well yet um, as, a, as a healthcare system. Um, and not, and not, I'm not talking about Dartmouth. I'm talking about nationally. I'm talking about um, doing a good job of describing these populations. So the denominator in a readmission rate is um, the live hospital discharge. So in order to be at risk for a readmission, you have to be discharged alive from the hospital. Um, that's, that's about it. And, and we can calculate a readmission rate from claims, uh, claims records quite easily because we know who is admitted and then we just follow up. Did they have a subsequent hospital admission within 30 days of discharge? Um, that's why we study, that's why readmission rates are a measure that we use is because they're easy to calculate from claims. But it doesn't mean that they're any good. Um, and it, and we, we don't really know, as I, as I mentioned before, I don't think we have great evidence that these are particularly avoidable um, because the, they're, there are some interventions that seem to have some modest influence on, on readmissions, but, but um, the readmissions are likely to, to persist because these patients are sick. Um, it, to calculate an admission rate, you need to know the population at risk for hospitalization. And I think that in order to make this a, a meaningful measure, we have to define, it, uh, define these populations carefully. Um, in cancer care, uh, patients uh, receiving chemotherapy is a, is a population that makes sense because those are the patients who we see regularly. So, uh, we can define an at-risk population as patients who, are, who we treat with chemotherapy. We know who we treat with chemotherapy, and, and then we want to know of those patients who are receiving chemotherapy, how often are they being hospitalized. So the metric is active hospitalizations per patient per month, or hospitalizations per patient per, cer per, per certain time period. Um, but you have to know that population at risk, which is a constantly churning population in which um, you know, which, which is achievable, but, but not um, obvious. Um, so when we got EPIC at Dana-Farber two years ago, um, we said, well, can we use EPIC to, help to, to do this? And, and I know actually um, 
Dr. Eric has, has done, uh, done a little bit of work with, with um, using EPIC to generate an active population list here as well. Um, and so what we did is we, um, we said an active, patient is, uh, an active patient for the month of November is someone who is alive in no on November 1 and someone who received chemotherapy in September, October, and or November. So, that, so, so this was, if you, if you met those criteria, then we considered you at risk for, for um, chemotherapy-related hospitalization or, or part of our at-risk population for the month of November. So then we, that generates a list, a population, and then we can look for hospitalizations in that population. And we can do this from EPIC reporting um, or, or, um, or from, you know, the analytics staff at the, at the Analytics Institute presumably could, could do this sort of stuff, help us achieve this sort of stuff. Um, and then we can, now what we miss is um, we miss out-of-network hospitalizations. So that's an issue is how do we capture the out-of-network hospitalizations? Is there, is there a way that we can share data with our payers um, um, to understand how often our chemotherapy patients are being hospitalized in Littleton or Lancaster or wherever. Um, but once we have this population defined, we can then calculate the, hosp the hospital admission rates. So this is the data for Dana-Farber um, that we generated in this process. Um, and this is the admission rates and the 30-day readmission rates. And the way I read these admission rates is um, the way they're spelled out here, they're hospitalizations per thousand patient months. Um, so you could, I don't call it a percent because um, account, percent um, ignores recurrent events, whereas this, if, if one patient is hospitalized 10 times, then all 10 of those hospitalizations count in this measure. So um, there are 30 hospitalizations per 1,000 patient months among breast cancer patients, or three per 100 patient months. Um, so, and then the readmission rates are percents. They're easy to understand. Um, so at first glance, um, you see the readmission rates are greater, but the, but the denominator is smaller. Um, and then you also see the patterns are different here. Breast cancer patients are at the lowest risk of admission, and lung cancer patients are at the highest risk of admission, um, which isn't surprising. Lung cancer patients are sicker. They have, uh, they have a, more, a more aggressive disease. They tend to have more comorbidities. Um, but in the readmission uh, chart, um, actually lung cancer patients have the lowest readmission rate. Anybody want to guess why? Yeah, they die. And so um, we, we looked at that, and, th and that was in fact the case, is that these patients are often getting discharged on hospice, um, and, and many of them are dying within 30 and 90 days. And the 90-day the mortality rate um, is, is in excess of 40 percent. It's, it's 40 to 50 percent for the lung cancer patients who are admitted. Um, so, uh, so if we just look at readmission rates, we would think, oh, we're doing a really good job. And, and you know, hopefully we are. Hopefully we're getting them to hospice, getting them to appropriate services. But we shouldn't take credit for, for, for the mortality part of, part of that um, statistic. But, but, the, but current readmission measures actually, you know, sort of give us a break when our patients die rather than getting readmitted. Um, another reason that we should prefer admission rates over readmission rates is that, um, is that the, the denominator is bigger. Um, and so if we want to um, develop an intervention and have a big impact with the intervention, well, we want to have a big population to expose to that intervention, um, assuming that they're equally, they're equally easy to, to do, which you know, may or may not be true. Um, but this, this, these numbers are based on the um, lung cancer population at Dana-Farber. So there were 431 patients who, were, who met the active patient definition on a monthly basis at Dana-Farber. So if you calculate that over a year, if the baseline admission rate is 8.2 hospitalizations per 100 patient months, you get 424 hospitalizations per year. If you can reduce that rate, if you can find an intervention to reduce that rate by 
um, you can prevent 42 hospitalizations. If, you're, um, if your readmission rate is 19%, um, then with the same population, you're going to expect 80 readmissions per year. If you can reduce those 80 readmissions per year by the same 10%, um, then you prevent eight hospitalizations. So you'd rather prevent 42 hospitalizations than eight hospitalizations. Or you'd have to get an intervention that, that, had a, that was good enough to, to um, get a 52% reduction in the readmission rate to achieve the same benefit as a 10% reduction in the admission rate. So this is just the numerical reasons why I think um, we should really not be focusing so much on readmission rates. If, if, if our goal is to, to improve value and reduce, and, you know, and improve the patient outcomes, we should focus on the, patient, the population at risk for primary hospitalization, not just the readmissions. And uh, the oncology care model, which I mentioned before, that, that, which is the alternative payment model from CMS, um, has actually included um, this measure. It, this measure has not really been adopted by anybody yet. Um, none of our quality organizations have said hospitalizations per chemotherapy patient per month is, is a valid measure yet. Um, but, uh, but oncology care model has adopted this. Hospitalizations per episode per patient um, are, is, is one of the quality measures that they're using that patient that uh, practices have to meet this quality measure in order to qualify for the performance-based payments in oncology care model. And this was one of the three claims-based measures that are that there's other measures, not just claims-based measures, but this is one of the three claims-based measures that they're using for, for quality of cancer care within OCM. Um, so we have uh, just about 10 minutes left, um, and I'm going to talk about interventions to reduce avoidable, to reduce and prevent avoidable hospitalizations. <clears throat> um, so from the, um, the, the work that I described at the beginning, or the, uh, at the beginning more or less, I'm looking at um, avoidable hospitalizations at Dana-Farber and at Brigham. Um, the, I think the two key areas to think about targeting the interventions are um, end-of-life hospitalizations and chemotherapy-related hospitalizations. These, uh, th those were sort of the two bigger categories when you looked at things qualitatively. Uh, and uh, key questions um, that I'm going to address in part are what kinds of interventions will work, and a question that I'm probably not going to address very much, even though I, I think it's very important, are how should healthcare interventions, healthcare delivery interventions be studied? In cancer care, we're used to randomized controlled trials, which provide us very good evidence. Um, but they're not practical for many healthcare delivery interventions because a randomized controlled trial is patient-level randomization, um, whereas a systems-level intervention doesn't do well with patient-level randomization, and the outcomes are, are often um, or sometimes more challenging to, to, um, to track. And the intervention, the intervention fidelity is also much harder to track than, intervention, than giving a patient drug A versus drug B or, or placebo versus drug A. So studying these interventions is, is a little challenging, and it's something that I think we're not as good at in cancer, in, in healthcare in general, um, as we are at studying drug interventions or very well-defined patient-level interventions. So which interventions will work? Um, I think that I tried to, I, I looked through the, the literature of, of what's, at, what's been studied out there, what kinds of healthcare systems-level interventions um, are, are, have been studied and, and are shown to have some effectiveness. And, I tried to put them into categories of patient-targeted versus provider or system-targeted. Um, and I, I'm not sure these categories work as well as I want them to, but I think they work a little bit. Um, 
So patient-targeted interventions are things that um, where we provide additional services or different services to patients with the idea that, um, that by giving them additional services, we're going we're to help them. And there was an interesting editorial in, that I rec recommend in the New England Journal the other week about care coordination um, is more, uh, is, is, has been used to, as a catchphrase to improve value and reduce utilization, but it's not clear that care coordination um, reduces utilization. It may actually increase utilization. So many of these interventions, you know, you have to wonder, if we give patients more care, is that likely to engender less, less intensive care? It's, that's not always the case. But certainly early integration of palliative care has lots of evidence showing that um, that will reduce uh, in uh, end-of-life hospitalizations um, and that patients who receive hospice care um, are much less likely to die in the hospital and are much less likely to have hospitalizations at the end of life. So getting our palliative care colleagues involved early, um, making sure patients understand that they have options beyond third-line and fourth-line chemotherapy. They have options like focusing on comfort-directed comfort care and focusing on managing symptoms. Um, enhanced access to clinic-based acute, clinic acute care. This is um, encompassed in patient-centered medical homes, um, which, is a, which is a general medicine concept, which has started to come into oncology. Um, we should give patients care when and where they want it. Can we, can we give them care on, on the weekends? Can we get them in the same day? Can we provide that capacity so that if a patient has a problem, it can be addressed in the clinic today instead of in the emergency department today? Um, and proactive telephone and home-based care, other similar techniques. And then on the provider-targeted end of the spectrum are things like standardizing care. Um, this is a big deal in oncology, is if we define preferred chemotherapy regimens, can we, can we standardize care so that um, the complications become more predictable, the staff is more familiar with handling the complications of, of a limited set of, of uh, chemotherapy regimens. Um, Standardized symptom assessment is, is an interesting, um, interesting technology um, that has some evidence. And I'm going to, if I have time, I'll talk briefly about um, using data to improve risk stratification and see if we can um, use our data to improve our clinical evaluation of our patients. Um, so I'm going to quickly talk about a few, um, a few programs that have been studied and then actually have data about whether or not they impact hospitalization use. Um, so the InEvent Oncology Program is sort of the brand name of um, this Texas Oncology McKesson Specialty Health Aetna collaboration. Um, Texas Oncology is part of U.S. Oncology, which is big on big oncology in the United States. They're very they're very well known for delivering good care and and, and efficient care in the in the clinic setting. Um, and they have this they studied what they called a three component intervention of pathways, so standardized care. Um, outbound nursing calls to patients. Um, so, so they were able, Aetna was it sort of compensated them to do this um, and advanced care planning. They have a very small, they've reported outcomes on a very small population where they showed um, they were able to reduce hospital admissions from 24% to 18% and reduce hospital days from 2.1 days per year to 1.2 days per year. Um, so they showed that they, they say that they showed that there, that there were uh, reductions in hospitalizations with this program. Um, the Centers for CMMI, Centers for Medicare, uh, Medicaid, Inno Medicare Innova Innovation. I'm not sure if I'm getting that one right, but um, CMMI um, had a uh, Healthcare Innovation Award demonstration project um, where another a for-profit company <laughs> formed to do this. It's interesting. You can see these are not clean interventions, um, like like drug A versus drug B. These are 
a for-profit company pops up to accept an award from the government and test, uh, test these strategies for um, preventing hospitalizations um, and, and increasing the value of care. It was a similar thing to what, what um, Texas Oncology did. Um, they introduced treatment pathways. They enhanced clinic hours. Um, they, they tried to incorporate oncology medical home principles. Um, and they introduced um, very specific telephone triage pathways so that if a patient calls, there's a script um, and, and, and problems are handled in a standardized way from the clinic. Um, and they did it, and the, uh, an independent evaluator um, for the government did a, a difference in differences analysis showing significant reductions in ED visits and readmissions, but non-significant changes in hospitalizations and total costs. So um, despite being a multi-million dollar award, I would say pretty, pretty um, you know, there were improvements in care among many dimensions. Patients liked it, but it's not clear that it had a big impact on this particular um, avenue. This is a study that I, that I, I did like quite a bit. Um, this is Ethan Bash um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, um, now at UNC, um, did a, a tablet and web-based symptom reporting intervention at, at Sloan Kettering. Patients, um, 766 patients were randomized at the patient level to either use or not use this, symptom, this uh, electronic symptom reporting tool. Um, and they looked at, uh, at the, the primary outcome of uh, decline in health-related quality of life. Now, unfortunately, there was an overall decline in all patients, but it was less among the patients who, who used the symptom reporting system um, because, as oncologists, we're probably not very good at, at, at assessing all the symptoms that we ought to be assessing. And when they used this standardized symptom reporting tool, they had a chance to tell us what, they, what, what their symptoms were. And we try to do that in clinic, but there's only so much time, and, and uh, perhaps we don't do as good a job as we ought to um, all the time. And they found that the, the group that was able to report their symptoms in this standardized tool had, had fewer ED visits, fewer hospitalizations, and longer time on chemotherapy, presumably because they had fewer toxicities and side effects, or their si toxicities and side effects were better managed. Um, the last thing that I'll talk about very briefly is um, a project that I'm, I'm in the middle of um, to try to use data from um, electronic health records to improve a risk assessment for a patient's risk for being hospitalized when they're at the time that they start chemotherapy, with the idea being that well, we have we have an ECOG performance status. That's our standard uh, tool in oncology, where we say how, is the patient um, active and doing doing all their social functions, or are they spending time most of their time sitting in a chair or lying in bed. Um, and that's our main, main tool for assessing, uh, you know, a patient's uh, frailty versus their ability to, to tolerate treatment. Um, but can we use the data that we have in a more, in a more uh, predictive way to identify which patients are at risk for, for, having, a, for having a hospitalization due to, due to the discrete data that we are already capturing? Um, so is there an opportunity to use that data? Um, so we... Um, I got a small, got a pilot grant to look at 3,000 patients, 3,600 patients with metastatic solid tumor malignancies treated at Kaiser Colorado or Kaiser Northwest. Um, and we looked at um, all, all, basically all the data that, that are routinely available in the electronic health records. So um, all the labs that are available, usually a comprehensive metabolic, you know, before we start chemotherapy, we pretty much always are going to get a comprehensive metabolic panel, a CBC, um, vital signs are recorded in structured fields, so we have access to that information. We know if the patient has had any recent radiation treatments, um, which can make them um, frailer. We know if they've had recent uh, unplanned hospitalizations. So all those factors were put into a, um, a model derivation process. Um, and we were actually able to select a two-predictor model. Um, this is, these are logistic regression models. And our two-predictor model 
um, picked out the two most important factors were the albumin on the day of treatment initiation and the sodium on the day of treatment initiation. Um, I don't know if that's surprising or not. Um, it's certainly, those are certainly not measures that we commonly incorporate into treatment decision making other than, you know, we want to see that they have, we, we want to see that, we know that lower albumins are bad and we know that um, we, we don't want their sodium to be 120 when we start their treatment, but, but we don't use it in a very, very fine-grained way. This model had modest, modest discriminatory capacity, um, although many of these types of big data models don't, and this is, this is not, it's not great, um, but it's not terrible, I would say. Um, but we were able to, to define a population that had a 26% risk of hospitalization within 30 days of starting chemotherapy versus a low-risk population that had an 11% risk of hospitalization. So if you're going to build an intervention, you might want to roll it out to these high-risk patients, to the 20% of patients who are high-risk and have a 26% risk of hospitalization um, and not to these lower-risk patients who have an 11% risk of hospitalization as a group. So I think there are... I think this is a demonstration that maybe this, maybe this concept um, has some legs. I'm not sure that this project has, has nailed it, um, and, and we certainly would need to validate this. Um, but, um, and then the question, can we use things like connected health to improve our, you know, to improve our data, you know, to improve our understanding of a patient's performance status and their risk for hospitalization? Um, or do we just need to spend a little more time talking to them? Um, either might be true. Um, so in synthesis, um, to leave a few minutes to, for discussion, um, hospitalizations are expensive, and I, I do think they're potentially avoidable. Um, the alternative payment systems provide incentives for us to consider healthcare delivery reform, um, but they do not, they're not an intervention on their own. They're just an incentive for us to, to roll out our own interventions. Um, and so system-level interventions um, you know, show some potential, um, but it's dependent on us to develop these interventions and test them and we'll only be able to know if they're working if we have a metric. And that, I think that metric ought to be hospitalizations among chemotherapy, among the, the defined population of active chemotherapy patients. Um, so thank you, um, and happy to take any questions. talk um, and thanks for promoting palliative care obviously um, but I also wanted to say that um, at Sidey Cancer Center where I used to work in Cleveland Case Western Reserve we had an acute um, acute cancer care uh, model where we had nurse practitioners who um, had an urgent care clinic in the cancer center and would see patients who would come in with fever and be able to do labs and and x-rays and things like that and infusion and whatever they might need, a little extra nausea, medication, and then be able to send them home. And so it was a really nice model. And I'm not sure what other models you've seen, but, um, but I really see the utilization of advanced practice nurses in that kind of setting. Yeah, I, I agree absolutely. And I think that, I think that um, you know, at Dana-Farber, we didn't have an acute, we didn't have that model, and, and we don't really have it here either. Um, but we have informal systems where if a patient calls, we definitely won't try to get them in, and we definitely try to make that capacity, but I'm not sure. I think having it, making that a priority and, and making sure that when patients um, call that we have a system of, of acute care to provide them, it's, I think we should be doing that because, we're, because we, know that, we know that they're at risk for those things. Um, keeping patients at home, or rather patients being able to stay at home, really takes resources at home, financial and, and cognitive. Um, so I was wondering, since supplemental insurance is not necessarily the best proxy for resources, whether or not your studies stratified by income 
and looking at different needs of low-income people to the higher-income. So I haven't I haven't looked at that. I mean, you're right that the these other some of the other studies that looked at practice level characteristics at variation across practices in hospital. One of the factors that um, that predicts higher hospitalizations in a practice is the proportion of patients who have um, who, ha who are dual eligible. So who 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 have who, who are Medicare who are Medicare, Medicaid eligible. So that suggests that you're exactly right that um, poorer patients with fewer resources um, are harder to keep out of the hospital, and that's. There's probably a link there between the family resources. On the other hand, I'll say that it takes resources to come to the hospital, and we see that in our patients all the time, that patients who are in the hospital are spending their resources in terms of their families driving to and from the hospital, in terms of these co-pays that are associated with inpatient care. So it's not as if there's no resource. You know, Coming to the hospital also costs resources, um, obviously, um, that, that are, that are patient-level resources. So I think, it, I, th I think you're right, and, and I don't know, you know, so what, how do we... That's a different set of interventions. How do you provide patients with the resources they need to keep them in their home? Um, and I, I think that you know that needs to be that needs to be part of this. I'm not sure that I've seen that many interventions. I mean, that that do you spend your money in the hospital or do you spend the money keeping patients at home? I'd rather spend it keeping them at home, but um, there have to be ways to do that. Let me take Brad and then to Rich. One quick question on your, on your data on the hospitalization rate in the first 30 days. So did that include the hospitalization that made the diagnosis? Someone may come with a pneumonia, and then it's at that hospitalization that they're diagnosed. Is that part of the data? No, no. These are all hospitals. The, I, I, the, the one I just presented, the, the last one? The beginning. The hospitalization rate in the first 30 days. Um, so uh, that, um, in the first six months, okay. Uh, that that may have included the diagnostic hospitalization. So that so some of those forty, whereas forty percent, forty eight percent of the costs were towards hospitalization. Some of that is early hospitalization. Some of those are not chemotherapy related hospitalization. So if someone comes in with the admitting diagnosis of pneumonia, and they're leaving diagnosis of lung cancer, is that captured? In the in the yeah in the in the claims data, yes, yeah. In the in the later hospitalizations, it's all been you have to first be an established patient receiving chemotherapy. But in that first set of data, that's right. So that's that is a problem with that. Rich. You mentioned at the beginning that patients don't want to be admitted unless they have to. That's certainly generally true, but there must be a percentage of patients who do want to be admitted, either because they've exhausted their home caregiver or because they just feel terrible, even though they may not meet our definition of being compromised. Do you have any measure of that? Because I didn't see any questionnaire of the patients who were hospitalized yeah. to see if they actually wanted to be hospitalized. Yeah, that's a good that's that's a very good point. So I I I thought that that's that's something that we really ought to do. We ought to be asking our patients, well, how does this matter to you? Um, and um, I haven't done that. And I think I think you're right. I think that there are a lot. There are certainly times when we think a hospitalization is avoidable, but actually the person who wants the hospitalization is the patient. Um, that's a hard that's a harder problem, I think. Um, and I don't. I I think it's hard to say no when a patient can't cope anymore. Having done a study of avoidability, you having done a study of avoidability of hospitalizations at an institution, what do you think about the idea of trying to assess that regularly as part of our, prospectively now, as part of our care process? Would it make, granted, lots of hard difficulty of getting three interviews, so you'd have to amend it, but do you think that it would be helpful to do ongoing quality improvement in this area to actually try to make that part of our initial assessment? 
So it, it is time consuming, and um, so it depends on how much time we're, we're all willing to devote to that. I mean, I actually think that maybe this is the point about the, asking the patient, that might be the way to do it, is to say, I, I don't know. I don't know how well equipped the patient is to, 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 a, to make, have an opinion about whether it's avoidable, but it's, it's, it is time consuming. I, I have concerns that it would be hard to, to sustain, and that people get a little fatigued when you ask them again and again. Um, they get a little fatigued of trying to judge themselves. If you control for disease, I was just wondering about disease duration as being a uh, marker of avoidability. I would imagine that would, did that show up for you uh, in your analysis? The longer stage disease duration, the, duration, the more less likely it's an avoidable admission is what I would think. So uh, except, except that many of these end-of-life hospitalizations, so th I think we're there seem to be, um, there's this phenomenon of patients who live a long time and, and to um, get chemotherapy for a long time, and then as they run out of treatment options, they, um, since they've benefited from so many treatments, um, they, they ask, where's the next treatment? Where's the next treatment? And we, we don't do, I think, as good a job of, of, of telling those patients, well, now you've really run out of treatments. And um, so I, I think that there are still um, patients who have had a long duration of illness who, are, who have a predictable decline that we, and we ha we're not doing a good enough job talking with them about about the, the limited re nature of our ability to help them. I don't know if that... Well, I have, in, other, uh, in other countries, is the admission rate the same? Uh, in other countries, uh, I don't know the admission rates. I, other countries have just as high death, death rates in the hospital. Um, in fact, they have higher death rates in the hospital than we do. Oh, no, you Yes, uh, thanks a lot for the I get, you know, talking about metrics and, and how you look at metrics is really important. And uh, you're looking at expense, but I think people were talking about around this, but, um, you know, now there's a lot of emphasis on value or improved outcomes over lower cost or, you know, probable costs. I mean, is there a way to kind of devise these, these studies so you don't get whether, how your intervention is really improving the outcomes for the patients that are serving rather than just looking at expense or avoidable hospitalizations. Because like you said, there was one guy who said, you know, this is, this is, could have been avoidable, but this is the right thing to do. I mean, so shouldn't the studies be devised so that we're looking at the outcomes rather than just looking at whether or not it's expensive? And, and I think you're saying the outcome is patient satisfaction, I right. think. Um, and, and I think you're right. I mean, I think you're right. So I guess, I don't, do we, I don't know. Is, is patient satisfaction tied to fewer are patients who, who are hospitalized less often more satisfied? I would imagine they are, but I don't know that. And so I think we need to, I think, yeah, I think we, it would be important to make sure that patients aren't becoming less satisfied as their hospitalizations are decreasing, and that wouldn't be good. Um, so I think that we need to take patient satisfaction into it. Um, I'm not sure what other measure besides patients has, I'm not sure exactly how, yeah. Before we end, I'm reminded to tell you that to claim credit, you should put in and text QFVA, which is up on the board, but I'm saying that also for the people online. QFVA, all in small letters. Gabe, I want to thank you for presenting today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I should also thank.